If I had a bucket of ping pong balls and I threw them at you and told you to catch them, you would probably drop every single one of them. But if I held up one or two ping pong balls and I said, catch them, and I threw them at you, you could probably catch both of those. Because we get overwhelmed sometimes by a lot of details and we want things simplified. It makes it easier for us to remember. A guy came up to Jesus with a similar question. And he said, of all the commandments that God has given us in the Torah, and I think there's like 620, something like that. There's a lot. That's a lot of ping pong balls in a trash can. He said, what's the one ping pong ball I should never drop? And Jesus said, the one thing that is most important, if you're going to drop all other ping pong balls, but you're going to catch one, it's this one. Love God first and most. Now, the guy had heard that answer before because he'd read that in the Torah. He'd also read the next thing that Jesus had said, but he'd never heard that it was the same value as the first one, that it was equal to the first one. Because Jesus added, he goes, and the second is just as important as the first. He says, you can't, there's actually two ping pong balls. That's what Jesus said. The guy says, what's the most important ping pong ball? And Jesus goes, there's two, and you have to catch them both. The first is to love God first and most. And the second is to love your neighbors yourself. That one is a little bit harder because, like, I get God, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm not saying I get God, everything about God. Uh, I'm just saying, the idea of putting God first, I get that. But to love my neighbor as myself, that's that feels more vague because I have a lot of neighbors, and there's some of them that I like more than others. And apparently the same is true for this guy asking Jesus his question. So, he said, well, who is my neighbor? And the Bible actually tells us that he asked this question wanting to justify himself because obviously there were, there were people he was very kind to, and then there were other people he probably wasn't very kind to. And then Jesus, in answer to the question, who is my neighbor, tells the famous story, whether you're religious or not, you've probably heard of the Good Samaritan. There's a hospital in Brockton named the Good Samaritan Hospital. It's named after this Samaritan who goes out of his way to help uh, a a an injured Jewish man in a ditch. And the story is less about all of the amazing things that the Samaritan did for the Jewish man as much as it was about who was the one doing all of these amazing things for the Jewish man. So in unpacking Jesus' story in this series, Like a Good Neighbor, we saw that in week one that your neighbor is actually your neighbor, the people that live closest to you, you and I, we have a responsibility to serve those that are in our spheres of influence all the time. People that we work with, people that we sit in homeroom with or ride the bus to school with or, or I, I, I don't um, in the same dorm, um, who has their kids in the same little league program that our kids are in. In the second week, we said that your neighbor is also your enemy. Jesus had said that, and it's Man, that's a really hard one. And then last week, we saw that your neighbor is also the outsider, the people that are not in your already comfortable spheres of influence, your friendship groups that were to have, metaphorically speaking, an empty chair at our friendship table that we're constantly welcoming people, welcoming people in. And this week, we're going to be looking at the idea that your neighbor is simply anybody in need. And like the first guy who heard what Jesus had said about the neighbor, we also get uncomfortable 
with the implications of what it means to love our actual neighbors, love our enemies, to include outsiders, and take responsibility for those who have needs. I'm uncomfortable with this because it means that my life isn't just about me. It means that I'm responsible for more than just myself. It also means that my money and my time are not my own. There's a famous celebrity who one time said that Christianity is a crutch for the weak. And I'm thinking that that person had probably not tried on Christianity because of all of the difficult things that God has asked us to do, man. Like it, it takes a certain amount of moral fortification of I don't, I don't, like like character and it's it's just not it doesn't come natural is the only point I'm trying to make it doesn't come natural to love our enemies to include outsiders and to take responsibility for people who are I don't like people that have needs I know that sounds bad like I, I shouldn't have even said that holy cow that sounded so much worse out loud than what it did in my head before I said it it's not that I don't you and I both know needy people that we avoid Right? Please tell me I'm not the only one that knows of needy people in the world that we try not to bump into very often. Some people always have to tell a story. Oh my gosh. And some of you are going like, yeah, you, Sean, you always have to tell a story. And I, I, I know, but some people always have to be the center of attention. And anybody who's related to me goes, yeah, Sean, that's you too. So maybe I'm the needy one. But there are people in my world that drive me crazy because they're they're not just financially needy, and that's not even like they're emotionally uh, needy. And it, man, it's a difficult thing. That's that's all I'm saying. It doesn't come easy for me. Dying to my own self-interest may be one of the most difficult parts of being a follower of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at a beautiful story of a group of people who went way out of their way for someone in need. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Mark chapter 2. Now, the book of Mark, it's the second book in the Christian New Testament. And it's different from Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke because there's no manger scene. There's no wise men. There's no stables. There's no angels singing glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill to men. There's, there's no sheep. Uh, there's no right? There's no gold, frankincense, and myrrh. He just opens up with this wild man named John preaching in the desert, wearing camel skin and, and eating locusts, and telling everybody that they all need to repent. This isn't the guy that you want to be caught sitting next to on the T or on the commuter rail. If this guy was sitting next to you, you'd probably get off at the next stop and get in the car in front of the car and back. And Jesus comes up to the guy, and this is all in Mark chapter 1, and he gets baptized by John. And John goes, you don't need, you don't have anything to repent of. And Jesus says, no, I need to be baptized because this is an example for everybody that will ever come after me. And it still is an example that we follow today. Right after that, it just jumps into Jesus casting a demon out of somebody and and what was so controversial about this is that the Pharisees also had cast out, these are the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they'd also been trained to cast out demons. But for them to cast out a demon, man, it was a big ordeal. There was, there was days of prayer and fasting and uh, extra virgin olive oil that would be 
anointed over the person, and then there was a group of holy people that would all be praying. Like it was an intense, like like it was a like a big ordeal. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus says to the demon, just two sentences. He goes, "Be quiet, and come out of him." And that's all it took, dude. That was that was mind blowing in Jesus' day especially to the religious leaders who had seen this and couldn't cast this demon out, that Jesus would just walk up casually and tell the demon that was disrupting this, this person's life, stop and go. And then the demon stops and goes and word spreads. And Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever that was going to kill her. And uh, then he heals a whole bunch of other people. And at the end of chapter one, it just says people from all over the place uh, were coming to listen to Jesus. Uh, it says uh, he had, to, in, in fact, there were so many people that he wasn't able to enter a town anywhere. Mark chapter one, verse 45 says he had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. So John just kind of fast forwards the life of Jesus all the way up until he starts his ministry. And in chapter one, I don't even know how much time this covers. But chapter two opens up this way in verse one. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later. Now we know what happens from Matthew and uh, Luke on those several days. Jesus had gotten into a boat and had gone over the Sea of Galilee. And then he healed two other demon-possessed guys who were, it's a crazy story, by the way. It's in Matthew 8, Luke 5, uh, Mark 5, and Luke 8, where there's two naked, demon-possessed, crazy men who live in tombs who scream in the middle of the night and cut themselves with sharp rocks until they bleed. It's, bro, it's, 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 it's crazy. This story's crazy. At the end of that story, Jesus hops back into a boat and goes back to Capernaum, and that's where Mark picks it up in verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Uh, and the same story is in uh, Luke 5, and it gives us a little bit of extra detail about, uh, about this. It says, Luke chapter 5, verse 17, One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that, men, that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And then Luke gives us the same story that Mark is. So it's, there's a lot of people that are showing up in Capernaum to hear what uh, Jesus and to be healed by Jesus. But Luke goes out of his way to say it's not just regular people. Like religious, the religious elite from all over Galilee, the rest of Judea, all the way down to Jerusalem, all of these religious leaders have come to Capernaum to wait for Jesus to come back. And this is a little bit like an inquisition. This is a, uh, who the heck is this guy? And what is he about? Is he playing on our team or not? We're going to go back to Mark chapter 2 to read the rest of the story. Uh, verse 2. Soon the house where Jesus was at, uh, where he was staying, was so packed with visitors that there was no more room for them even outside the door. So it's packed, man. Like, like we don't know how big the house is. The, none of the accounts of this story in the New Testament tell us how big the house is. But they all say that the house is jam-packed with people. You've been at a house like that, I'm sure. Maybe it was a Super Bowl party or it was possibly a wake. I went to a, a friend of ours, the repass for our friend's father. And um, 
this is several years ago, and man, there was a ton of ton of food and people everywhere. Okay, that's that's the scene. So it says not even at the door, which means that people were starting to stack up outside by the doors and probably by the windows. You know, windows would have been open. They didn't have air conditioning. If all those people are in the house, it's going to get hot. So it makes sense to me that they would open up the windows and people were at the windows probably listening. There's just everybody wanting to hear Jesus talk. Uh, and he's in this house. Back, back to the story, verse 3. Uh, while, excuse me, the end of verse 2 says, while he was preaching God's word to them, verse 3, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. So of all the people that were coming to be healed, there were four guys that were coming and they were bringing somebody else to be healed. He was on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. And they had an opportunity at that point probably to take their friend back. Like, it's dude, we tried. But here's what they do. They dug a hole through the roof above Jesus' head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. <laughs> I read, like, picture the Bible in your head when you read it. Jesus is teaching in somebody's living room, and it's packed. Well, somebody owns this house. It's not Jesus, because like two chapters later, Jesus says, the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus didn't own anything. So he's in somebody's house. And that somebody was probably in the room and probably worried about everybody messing up their home. And I'm wondering at what point did they notice somebody was on the roof digging through their ceiling. And as Jesus is teaching and plaster starts dropping on him, does he keep talking or does he... Does he look up? Did he get any in his eye? Right? And then somebody sticks a finger down through the roof like this. Right? And they're like, yeah, we're, we're right above him. This, this is great. And if I'm the owner of the house, I'm going to send somebody upstairs <laughs> to stop those guys. Right? Like, holy cow, man. Like, I don't know. But they keep tearing open the hole. I don't know if it's because they were so fast or whoever owns the house they, it was just too many people sensing it to stop, but they get the hole big enough and then they lower their friend down through the hole in front of Jesus. And here's what happens in verse five. Seeing their faith, the four people's faith and, and probably even the dude who's on the mat because he could have stopped it if he wanted to. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't, I don't even know if that's why the four guys brought their paralyzed friend. But Jesus looked at this guy and he knew that the biggest problem in his life was not his physical disability, but his spiritual emptiness. And Jesus spoke to the one thing that he knew would be best for him now and for all of eternity. Your sins are forgiven you. That's a big thing for somebody to say in the name of God that your sins are forgiven. That's a really big deal. And that's in the next verse, verse 6. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there listening to Jesus say this, said to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Like he's claiming himself to be the physical representation of God on the earth. Like 
Like those who say that Jesus never claimed to be God did not read this story because he is clearly identifying himself as God and they knew it and they were upset about it because this is blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. Verse 8, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Well, the obvious answer to that question is, well, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven because there's no proof that their sins have been forgiven. Anybody could just say, your sins are forgiven. Not anybody can just say, take up your mat and walk, because that's a whole nother deal. Like, no doubt some of these religious leaders had come from the town that this paralyzed man is from. And they knew that this guy, he ain't faking. And this ain't no sprained ankle. Like, this dude has been crippled who knows how long. But he's definitely not going to be able to take up his mat, stand up and walk. So Jesus says, what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? And no doubt everybody in the room is saying, well, it would be easier for you to say your sins are forgiven. That doesn't mean that they are. Good point, Jesus acknowledges. So the next verse says, verse 10, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And I love that Jesus says this because he talks about himself in the third person using a phrase that Daniel in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, Daniel, from Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel, he wrote a book that told that someday God would show up in the human story and he'd be referred to as the Son of Man when God shows up. And now Jesus is referring to himself by the moniker, the nickname that Daniel gives, because Daniel didn't know that his name was going to be Jesus. He just knew that someday God was going to show up in the human story, so he referred to him as the Son of Man, mankind. And Jesus is referring to himself, so now this is like the second time that he's inferring that he is God himself. All right, so back to the story. So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and he said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And every guarantee you, everybody shut up. Like it was, oh my gosh, it was so quiet that if there's an extra piece of plaster hanging that then fell, everybody in the house could have heard it. Like that's how quiet it was. Verse 11, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Verse 12. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. This is insane. And everybody saw it. Now Jesus is on everybody's radar. Now the scandal is not that Jesus healed the man because he had already done a whole lot of healings in Mark chapter 1. The scandal is that Jesus is personally absolving people of their sins against God as though they had sinned against him. Because they had. Because he's the very physical presence of God. So he's the one who's been sinned against. So he has the authority to offer forgiveness, which he does. The Pharisees and religious leaders were right. Only God can forgive sins. Now, the point of the story is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, even yours. But my focus for the rest of the time that we have together is on the faith of the four men who were being a good neighbor. I don't know if they knew what Jesus was going to do for their friend. 
I'm sure they were hoping, they were hoping that if they got there late and they had to stand in line, that Jesus would be there long enough for them to get to the front of the line and maybe that he would heal their friend. But the fact that he would forgive his sins and heal him was probably more than they were expecting and was unbelievably cool, I'm sure. Um, but what I love about the story is that they probably could have turned around if they wanted to and, and been able to explain to their friend that they had done their best because they, they took him from wherever he lived to wherever Jesus was and the place was crowded. But what I love is that when they, when they get all the way there and it doesn't work, they go, and beyond, they go above and beyond what anybody would rationally expect them to do. And I think that that's awesome, but I also think that it's an example for the rest of us. They demonstrate a biblical principle that the Apostle Paul tells should be a description of the way every person who's a follower of Jesus lives their life in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. And here's what Paul said. He said that we are to share each other's burdens, and in this way we obey the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Well, the guy already asked. What's the law of Christ? To love God first and foremost, and to love your neighbor as your friend. And it's easy for me to say that I love other people. But Paul says that to fulfill the law of Christ, to be obedient to Jesus, telling you you need to love your neighbor, is that you need to be willing to share in the burdens of another person. That's what you need to do. Showing up at church and being a good person during the week isn't the fulfillment of the law of Christ. It's sharing in the burdens of another person. Now, this doesn't mean that you are to pick up their burden for them. It's that you are to share in carrying their burden with them, not for them. I was reminded of a scene in Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, uh, by one of our other location pastors. And there's a scene at the end of the movie. This is the last movie of, of all of the movies for the Lord of the Rings. And Frodo has the ring to rule them all. And he has this long journey that lasts several movies. And at the end of the movie, he has to throw the ring into the fires of Mount Doom. But he's exhausted and he can't, he can't go another step. And he falls down and he reaches out to his friend, Sam Gamgee. And I think that's his name. I'm going from memory. I didn't even look it up. But he looks at his buddy, Sam Gamgee, and he holds up the ring and he says, you have to finish the job. And Sam says, Frodo, the ring is not mine to bear. It is yours, but I will carry you. And then he picks him up. Oh my gosh, like that, that is exactly what we see in this story in Mark chapter two. Now James, the half-brother of Jesus, echoes this same sentiment in his letter to the church in the first chapter, James chapter one, verse 27, when he said, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means what? Caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. That letting the world, refusing to let the world corrupt you is a description of one of the ways that we love God first and most, but that caring for the orphans and the widows is me bearing the needs or sharing in the needs of those who have burdens. People who can never pay me back. And that's kind of the point. And I'm not sure who the orphans and widows in your life would be. But those are the people that we tend to avoid because we know every time we're around the orphan and the widow, 
they need help with something. And if I'm going to be completely transparent, I often avoid those situations because I feel like what I'm doing is more important. I'm just being real transparent here. I make a value assessment that my life is more important to me than their life is important to me, so I'm not going to help them. And Paul addresses that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, when he says, first, verse 2 says, share each other's burdens, and in this way you obey the law of Christ. Verse 3, if you think that you're too important to help someone, because that's the reason why we wouldn't share in somebody else's burdens, he says, you are only fooling yourself. You're not all that. He says, you're not that important. The Sean translation is, you're not all that. The author of Hebrews says a similar thing in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, when he says, let's think of more ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And that's part of what I'm trying to do right now even is to motivate you to think of ways to act out of love and do good deeds. James said in the first chapter, verse 27, that it's people like widows and orphans. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, he said, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but you don't show it by the way you treat others, by your actions? Can that kind of faith save someone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye. Have a good day. Good luck. Stay warm and eat well, but you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? And then the next verse that I didn't write down for to include with you guys, saying he says that faith without obedience to the law of Christ, without actually sharing the burdens of other people, is dead. That's not real faith. Like whatever you have, if it doesn't transform who you are on the inside and make you aware of the needs of other people and give you some type of an unction, like an internal, I need to do something about this for other people, James is saying, man, this is really hard, but you might not have the Spirit of God in you, if that's the case. Being a good neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself is more than just being friends with somebody or being nice to them. It's engaging in their life to whatever degree is appropriate and to whatever degree they are willing. And this may be the one thing that most identifies those who truly have the Spirit of God in them. Even Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Not the cleanliness of your life, not which service you attend and which location. He said, the way you love people is how other people who don't love me will know you belong to me. And this has been true for the last 2,000 years. There was an, a Roman emperor, uh, Julian, and he was in the fourth century. And he regretted the, the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. And he wrote the Christian faith. Atheism is what he called it because Christians deny the existence of all of the Roman gods. So he referred to Christians as atheists because they only believed in one God. The, those of the Christian faith, these atheists, 
has been the cause, their cause, has been specially advanced through the loving, their loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal, he says to the Romans, that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar and that these godless Galileans, the followers of Jesus, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should have rendered them. He said, that's the thing. That's like the cause of Christianity. Like it's exploding all over the Roman Empire because of the way they treated people, not just their people. Emperor Julian said, but for our people, the people that reached out to us for help and didn't find it, found it with them. Like this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We share in the burdens of other people. We give up a Saturday and carry a friend who's paralyzed across town or across the county or across the region and wait and then climb up onto a roof and with our bare hands dig through somebody's clay tile and plaster ceiling and drop our friend in front of Jesus. Man, we don't stop. That's what we do. We help people. In Acts 2, it was the generosity of Christians that led the author Luke to say, and each day the Lord kept adding to their fellowship those who were being saved. Like just a few verses earlier, he counted them all and said there were 3,000. But now, and then all these verses between verse 41 and I think it's verse 46, it's a description, or 47, 46 or 47, it's a description of the way that they lived generously towards people inside the faith and outside the faith. And he just stops counting and he goes, and God just kept adding all the people that were coming to faith in him to the local church because of the way that they were living. If we really want to see a move of God in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our families, in our places of business, then let all of the people in these places see in us such a capacity for kindness and compassion that they have no natural explanation. That would be amazing. If there was no elementary school that had an empty volunteer spot, right? Because a Christian, no library, no nursing home, no hospice facility. There's nobody on your street or in your apartment building that didn't know that you were the person they could come to if they were ever in a jam. That's what it looks like to be a good neighbor. Let those around us feel so loved by us that they are compelled to ask more questions of us and then become followers of Jesus with us. That's my prayer, and I hope that's yours too. If you would, bow your head with me, and we'll pray. God, I love you with all of my heart. And I am 100% thankful for the way that you loved me without ever. Uh, I can never repay you, and you, you know that. You, you absolutely know that. And all you've asked me to do is be willing to show that kind of love and generosity towards others, even if they can't pay me back. That just like you meet my needs and you care about my burdens, help me to care about others' burdens and be will, willing to meet their needs also. Truthfully, you're not asking us anything to do for others that you haven't already done for us. 
So now what I want you to do is I want you to think of somebody that you might know in your life that has a need. And I don't want you to come to Grace Church for help to meet their need. I want you to ask what you can do to meet their need. You personally, the one that actually knows them. What can you do? There are people at your work who just need a friend. There are people that you know, I, I, I don't know, fill in the blank. This is, this is where they're bro broken and this is how I can help. God, give us a greater capacity. That's it, give us a greater capacity, but I don't think that that will matter unless you give us a greater awareness. Help us to see people the way that you see people. Help us to see our teammates. Help us to see other people in our school, in our building, in our places of business, on our street, at the Y, working out, LA Fitness, whatever. Just help us to just notice people and to be kind, to be decent, and to be open-handed and generous because you were all of those things for us first. Help us to be those things for others. This is our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.